This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A warning. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of financial crimes and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for children under 13. It was like a game of football with seconds left on the clock, Frank DiPascali thought as he reached to make a catch. But the clock was the SEC regulators waiting upstairs and the football was freshly forged investment records. A victory today meant pulling off history's biggest Ponzi scheme. If they lost, they would find themselves behind bars. But Di Pascali's team, the New York-based Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, was on a winning streak. Today, they'd had to forge accounting documents from years ago in less than the time it would take to dig a real document out of a file cabinet. To make the records appear authentic, they got creative. Di Pascali tossed the records to Annette Bongiorno, who pulled the documents into her chest, wrinkling the paper. Perfect. Playing catch with paper records wasn't a normal part of the investment advisory business. Not that Di Pascali or Bongiorno would know that. They'd never worked anywhere where they didn't have to lie. Or throw around fake documents to make them look as old as they claimed they were. Bongiorno passed the records to Joanne Krupe, who put them in the office's fridge to cool any remaining heat from the printer. They waited, running down the clock. Then, Di Pascali removed the wrinkled, cooled-down documents from the fridge and ran the forgeries upstairs. Moments later, the paper football was in the hands of SEC regulators. Sitting in a glass-walled office up two flights of stairs, the regulators were on alert for any sign of a lie. And so far, unaware that they were surrounded by them. As the regulators ran through false records and fake statements, Bernie Madoff held his breath, watching them like fans watch a Hail Mary in the fourth quarter. Somehow, 
time and again. The play worked. No one ever realized the records were forged, whether it be the SEC, foreign accountants, or due diligence officers from their feeder funds, the 17th floor team could run their con on anyone. Welcome to Con Artists, a ParCast original. Every week we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks and explain why anyone might fall for a con. Con Artists seeks to explore cons from all angles. The perpetrator, the victim, the world they lived in and the factors that forced them to fool or be fooled. In our first episode, we covered the upbringing and early influences of our fraudster. We'll understand what experiences shaped their mindset and the historical context that allowed them to perpetuate their cons. In part two, we'll watch the wheels come off their scheme as their victims recognize the lie. I'll detail how our subject was eventually caught, the resulting fallout, and where they are today. Today, we're wrapping up the story of Bernie Madoff, architect of the world's biggest known Ponzi scheme. Last week in part one, we covered Madoff's rise to prominence on Wall Street and how the Nasdaq chairman with a legitimate broker-dealer firm leveraged his connections to Jewish philanthropists to run a secretive investment advisory scam. This week, we'll look at how Madoff conned not only his investors, but the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we'll follow whistleblower Harry Markopoulos' nine-year effort to shut Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities down. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Sitting in his office at Rampart Investment Management in February 2000, Harry Markopoulos rubbed his eyes in frustration. He had just discovered Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. A first-generation American with a polarizing personality, Marco Polis is what industry insiders call a quant and outsiders call a math whiz. Armed with his brilliant mind and a penchant for conspiracy theories, Marco Polis had been tasked with designing a fund that matched Madoff's returns. Within four hours, he had mathematical proof that Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities was lying to investors and breaking the law. And while Marco Polis had the proof, the Boston-based portfolio manager was pitting himself against a Wall Street wizard, a man who operated on reputation more than anything else. Bernie Madoff had grown a small operation started in the 1960s into a vast yet steady investment business by the 1990s. Chairman of the Nasdaq and advisor to the SEC, Madoff had a carefully crafted calm aura and an incredible track record of consistent investment returns. 
with investors ranging from Oscar winners to aristocrats, Madoff garnered business through word of mouth, making his services appear special and rare. His Manhattan office was spotless in black and grey, wide glass walls without a smudge. Everyone could see what he was doing, even if it was just obsessively cleaning his favourite sculpture, Oldenburg's The Soft Screw. The irony of that image isn't lost today, but it wasn't given a second thought by those lucky enough to get an introduction. Madoff made it clear he didn't accept just any investor. In fact, he was known to turn away those who asked too many questions. Madoff didn't even let his wealthy victims tell him how much they'd like to invest. He gave them a number, their personalized cost of entry, based on his research. Madoff claims he told them, Don't put in more than half your money with me. You don't know. I could go crazy. But he didn't seem crazy. His stylish clothes projected success. He had a yacht, a home in France, and took a seaplane to work. Hand over enough money, and all that could be yours too. The eager investor almost always wrote the check. The check went straight to Madoff's account at Chase Bank, where he could hand it out to earlier investors or simply spend it on himself. It's important to remember that, with a few phone calls, any investor could take money out of the Ponzi scheme. But why take the money now, when it'd be worth double in a few years? All investors received regular, albeit fake, account statements, and the balances only went up. By 1999, Madoff's New York operation was bringing in billions of dollars from five different continents. And Madoff was redistributing it however he saw fit. That knowledge made Harry Markopoulos' blood boil. He'd risk his own life to take Bernie Madoff down. But first, he'd start with an email. Six months after he'd first heard of Madoff in May 2000, Markopoulos submitted an eight-page report to the SEC's Boston office and subsequently met with a senior enforcement lawyer. Unfortunately, while Markopoulos was extremely smart, he was unable to cogently explain his analysis or Madoff's investment scheme in layman's terms. The SEC lawyer found Madoff's investment plan befuddling. This was by design. Madoff knew investment schemes could get complicated and that most investors, like most people, don't like reading or doing math. So he hid the impossibility of his plan behind mind-boggling equations. Madoff's con worked on the SEC lawyer just as it did on his victims. And he didn't even have to be in the room. The senior lawyer said he'd send someone to follow up at Madoff's office, but never did. He later denied meeting Harry Markopoulos at all, likely out of embarrassment. But the SEC's official investigation of their failure to catch Madoff, colloquially known as the Cots Report, confirmed that the meeting did happen and no action was taken afterwards. For the second time, the SEC had ample means and opportunity to catch Madoff, and had failed. Oblivious and undeterred, 
Marco Polis continued to follow up with the SEC. But he wasn't the only one who smelled something fishy. In May 2001, skeptical articles in the financial newsletter Mar Hedge and Barron's magazine brought Madoff's secretive investment advisory into the spotlight. Neither outright attacked Madoff, but the coverage led savvy readers to the conclusion that Madoff's strategies and success rate were, at the very least, implausible. A consummate con artist, Madoff knew any defense of himself would sound better coming from someone else's mouth. Social psychologist Maria Konnikova notes that con artists often use their social circles to gain victims' trust. Madoff did just that, reaching out to an influential contact to burnish the bad marks on his reputation. His choice was Jeffrey Tucker, one of the founders of the Fairfield Greenwich Group. Their Fairfield Century Fund was one of the biggest Madoff feeder funds, and Madoff could not risk losing their account. Tucker was responsible for the firm's due diligence checks. He was also a former SEC lawyer, and like most of the industry, he'd gotten wind of the suspicious articles. On the phone, Madoff encouraged Tucker to come down to the BLMIS office, where he could see stock trades in action. Tucker called the bet and went to Manhattan, where Madoff and his right-hand man, Frank DiPascali, were eager to show off their latest trick. DiPascali and the 17th floor team had been busy designing a fake version of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, or DTCC, website. In their phantom program, they carefully matched every real web page, every logo, every variation in font size. Now it was time to take it for a test drive. And pray the program didn't crash. When he arrived, Tucker was led through the 19th floor, past a series of brokers making legitimate stock trades, and into Madoff's spotless, glass-walled office. There. Madoff set Tucker up at his own executive desk. It was meticulously clean and organized, like everything else in Madoff's life. Madoff showed Tucker the knockoff website, mere feet from genuine art by Matisse and Picasso. The architects of the program, DiPascali, O'Hara, and Perez, were hidden away with computers on the 17th floor, ready to simulate the other side of a fake stock trade if needed. Calm and reassuring as always, Madoff showed off his own firm's stock holdings on the fake DTCC page, then told Tucker he could see any Fairfield Greenwich holdings he wanted. Tucker was pleased to see that the AOL shares on screen matched the records he had in his ledger, per the reports the 17th floor team had been sending him. Madoff held his breath. But he didn't need to. Tucker himself claimed he had never seen the DTCC site before. For Tucker, it all checked out. No need to worry. He and his clients were still very rich. In fact, perhaps he should invest more of his funds with Madoff. The existing ones were performing quite well. Madoff's trick had worked. Tucker believed in it and so would everyone he told. 
According to Konnikova, this tactic is a feature in many cons where a plant vouches for the con artist, visibly and publicly winning the game or succeeding in the investment by design. The plant looks and acts just like the intended mark, giving the victim someone to identify with. In this case, Tucker was both the plant and the mark. He had the clout of a successful man in the financial industry, and he'd been fooled. Tucker went on to vouch for Madoff to the Fairfield Greenwich clients, his SEC contacts, and his club of racehorse investors. Bernie Madoff and his team of con artists thought they had quelled all suspicion. But Harry Markopoulos was still on the fraud case like a bloodhound. On the advice of the SEC's Ed Mannion, he resubmitted his report in October 2001. This time, he included three more pages of evidence and two pages explaining the flaws in Madoff's strategy in simpler terms. This report made it all the way to the SEC's New York office, where it was promptly brushed aside. This marks the third opportunity missed by the SEC. As 2002 began, Marco Polis was increasingly frustrated. His thorough reports were being ignored. A criminal was getting away with stealing billions of dollars from thousands of innocent people. And, the cherry on top, his bosses still wanted him to replicate Madoff's purported yet impossible strategy. Marco Polis didn't know how high up the con went. Given the response of the SEC, it was possible the US government itself had a stake in the Ponzi scheme. He had to move carefully. In December 2002, Marco Polis dressed in his heaviest overcoat and gloves. It was cold, but he wasn't dressing for the weather. Marco Polis wanted to appear anonymous. He meticulously printed out a new copy of his report, minus his name or any identifying features. Slipped into two layers of manila envelopes, the report was clear of fingerprints, hairs, or any identifying features. Marco Polis carried the envelope to Boston's JFK Library, where he'd secured himself a ticket to hear New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer speak as part of a lecture series. Marco Polis sat patiently through the lecture, gloved hands around the stiff package that, once opened, would destroy thousands of lives. While Marco Polis admired Spitzer for his work regulating Wall Street, he also worried the Attorney General and his wealthy family were part of the same New York social circle as Madoff and investors themselves. Marco Polis worried Spitzer would not take the delivery well whether it be because Spitzer himself was involved in covering up the scam or a much more likely shoot-the-messenger situation. To create more distance, Marco Polis handed the package to a female staff member that ensured she'd get the envelope's contents to Spitzer. Then, he hurried home as far as he could get from the bombshell of evidence he'd just dropped. Coming up, Madoff's Ponzi scheme grows more complicated, and whistleblower Harry Markopoulos fears for his life. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. For Bernie Madoff, the early 2000s brought continued wealth, at least on the outside. On the inside, the Ponzi scheme was running short on cash, and that spelled danger. There are three ways to kill a Ponzi scheme. One, the guy at the top runs away with the money. If he plays his cards right, he might get away with it. Two, everyone who would invest has already and there are no more people able or willing to become the pyramid's newest bottom row. And three, everyone calls the bet and cashes in. Ponzi's are designed to keep money flowing in and never out. If too much money exits the system, the scam is doomed and the jig is up. In each case, most of the investors lose most, if not all, of their money. There's no winner at the end of this confidence game. And in the early 2000s, Bernie Madoff was looking at the beginning of the end. His old investors were pulling money out at almost the same rate new investors were putting money in. Of course, the investors were merely doing what any successful investor does, withdraw the money they're entitled to per their account statement. But in this case, the money listed on the statements didn't exist. Thanks to decades of steady return rates, those fake account statements now had numbers stretching into the billions. One investor in particular, Jeffrey Pickhauer, withdrew over a billion dollars in 2002. He'd only ever put in about $620 million and believed he had made off to thank for his now vast cash flow. Pickhauer was the Ponzi architect's worst nightmare. If he kept pulling out money, Madoff would go broke and be unable to pay out any other investors, shattering the illusion of his wealth and success. Pickhauer had the power to destroy everything Bernie Madoff had worked for all his life. But Bernie couldn't admit he'd failed in investment advisory. So he had to keep paying Jeffrey Pickhauer. In 2003, the SEC received another tip regarding Madoff, this time from an anonymous hedge fund manager. They did a perfunctory examination and were easily fooled by Di Pascali's fake records. This was the fourth mishandled SEC complaint. It was joined by an increasing number of botched routine examinations through the early 2000s. Despite the SEC's circling and his cash concerns, Bernie Madoff remains the public picture of success. By 2004, BLMIS was one of the 50 biggest firms on Wall Street, with a net worth approaching $500 million. Over the next four years, he bought three boats named The Bull, Sitting Bull and Little Bull to match his bull-themed office artwork by Picasso and Liechtenstein. 
He bought a chateau in Cap d'Antibes on the French Riviera, in addition to his homes in Manhattan, Palm Beach, and Montauk. He collected luxury wristwatches, spending tens of thousands on Rolexes and Cartiers. But in March 2005, the SEC was back at BLMIS. They said it was a routine examination, but in reality, they'd come to investigate. The SEC had found emails questioning the plausibility of Madoff's strategy when doing a routine examination at hedge fund firm Renaissance Technologies and decided to give BLMIS another look. This is, to note, the fifth time something extremely suspect was brought to their attention. Bernie Madoff was not having it. He refused to let anyone else at BLMIS interact with the investigators and kept them in a glass-walled conference room where he could watch their every breath. After three weeks of routine examination, Madoff blew up at the young staffers examining his records. But instead of growing more suspicious, they opened up. They had misled him, so of course he'd be upset. They confirmed they were looking for unethical money management in the BLMIS hedge fund accounts. Madoff assured them that these concerns were unfounded and let the investigators continue, while he watched their every move. However, in June 2005, the SEC dropped the investigation and wrote up a report clearing BLMIS of suspicion. Apparently, the fifth time was not the charm. According to Frank T. Pascali, after one such examination, he, O'Hara, Perez, and Krupi went to dinner, where they toasted to tricking the auditors. For them, the confidence game seemed to truly be a game. Perhaps this was due to the fact that, to the 17th floor team, their victims were merely names on paper. Or perhaps they all held the high-risk, high-reward mentality prevalent on Wall Street. After all, as the rewards grew bigger, Di Pascali began to increase the risks. According to his confession, at one point in summer 2005, he upgraded from lying as himself to lying as other people. Di Pascali posed as the firm's director of institutional operations when speaking to European banking partners. It's unclear why Di Pascali did this, since the actual director of operations, Daniel Bonventure, was in on the scam. More confoundingly, according to Di Pascali's testimony, Bonventure coached him for the performance. In psychologist Maria Konnikova's book, The Confidence Game, one thing becomes apparent in her study of famous cons. Con artists con and con again. And when it works, they go bigger. Perhaps the 17th floor team was so enamored with their own ability to get away with lies that they began telling larger ones just to see how far they could take it. But if Harry Markopolis got his way, the con artists wouldn't be taking it any farther. In 2005, Marco Polis had finally convinced the Boston branch of the SEC that Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. However, 
Since BLMIS was based in Manhattan and outside their jurisdiction, they'd have to take it to the New York branch. The timing couldn't be better. Marco Polis, increasingly paranoid, now carried a gun and had taken to checking the underside of his car for bombs. It may seem like he was taking things a bit far, but the same mentality that made him think Bernie Madoff might have him killed was what led him to discovering the Ponzi scheme in the first place. It was a blessing and a curse. Backed by the Boston branch chief, Marco Polis submitted a complaint to the SEC for the third time, this time directly to the New York office. Possibly learning from his past mistakes, he titled it simply, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. However, the New York team assigned to the case wasn't experienced in dealing with Ponzi schemes. Combine that with Marco Polis's obstreperous, condescending attitude, and the case went nowhere fast. The scam wasn't obvious to the New York team, and they wanted Marco Polis off their back as soon as possible. Per Diana Henriquez, one investigator later said, there wasn't any real reason to suspect some kind of wrongdoing. Fed up, Marco Polis tried and failed to get the Wall Street Journal to pick up the story. After almost six years, it felt like he'd exhausted every avenue. As he saw how deep and wide-reaching the Ponzi scheme went, Marco Polis wondered if the best solution was to kill Madoff himself. Lucky for Marco Polis, the SEC's New York branch was finally catching on. They'd independently discovered a discrepancy in hedge fund reports. Madoff had told the SEC investigators he was not trading options in his hedge fund accounts. But Fairfield Greenwich, the major feeder fund managed by Jeffrey Tucker, had records stating otherwise. In February 2006, the SEC reached out to Madoff himself. They requested a list of all accounts Madoff was using to perform trades for his hedge fund clients, his DTCC clearinghouse number, and any records of options trading for the hedge fund clients. This was a death blow for Bernie Madoff. The accounts and records didn't exist. If he handed over his fake paperwork and the SEC cross-checked it with the DTCC, he'd be outed immediately. If he denied the request, he'd be outed even faster. But that was only if the SEC investigators bothered to do their homework. And given their track record, Madoff decided to take a gamble. On February 23rd, Madoff honored the SEC's request and turned over six pages of bold-faced lies. Up next, the fallout from the biggest gamble of Bernie Madoff's life. Now back to the story. With the SEC once again investigating his firm in early 2006, Bernie Madoff was running on borrowed time. On May 19th, the SEC finally sat down with Madoff. Ostensibly, 
they were following up on the six pages of documents Madoff had provided to prove the legitimacy of his investment advisory business. Without his lawyer present, Madoff explained away their worries about his implausible trading records with, I just feel the market. He remained friendly and relaxed, exuding the same confidence that had swathed so many investors. And it swayed the SEC. They didn't even bother to check his DTCC account, which Madoff told journalist Diana Henriquez astonished him. However, it wouldn't astonish a psychologist. Madoff thrived on the classic foot-in-the-door technique, first characterized by doctors Jonathan Freeman and Scott Frazier of Stanford University. Through studies, Freeman and Frazier found that those who had already helped someone or judged them to be good were more likely to help that person or judge them as good a second time. The SEC had already audited and cleared Madoff multiple times and thus were more likely to uphold that positive judgment on this latest investigation. Once again, Bernie's sterling reputation saved the day. The SEC cleared him of suspicion for the sixth time, when simple due diligence would have shown that Madoff had less than $24 million in stocks when he purported to have billions. In all fairness, billions were flowing into Madoff's hands. They were just very quickly flowing out. From 2005 to 2007, over $12 billion poured into Madoff's Ponzi scheme through a growing network of foreign hedge funds and domestic IRAs. The metaphorical pyramid grew increasingly complicated adding derivatives and risk-free arbitrage to the stew of split-strike conversion, hedge funds, feeder funds, stocks, bonds, and options. It was harder and harder to understand, but with the consistent positive returns, it was harder and harder to question. To keep the ball rolling, the returns and the clients got bigger. According to Madoff's criminal charges, some accounts for favored clients earned returns of 46% per year. And Madoff's investors now included big names, including Steven Spielberg and his Wunderkinder fund, Kevin Bacon, Kira Sedgwick, the owners of the New York Mets, and Holocaust survivor-turned-humanitarian Elie Wiesel. Wiesel said of Madoff, it was a myth that he created around him, the myth of exclusivity. He gave the impression that maybe a hundred people belonged to his club. But with a mythic reputation to protect, Madoff had to pay a fair amount of hush money to his co-conspirators on the 17th floor. Six and seven-figure salaries bought their silence for a time until 2006, when O'Hara and Perez realized how deep they were into a criminal operation and got nervous. According to Di Pascali, they termed their newfound discomfort with committing crimes as a bit of a pickle and demanded to be compensated in diamonds. Di Pascali replied, where the hell am I going to get a bag of diamonds? O'Hara and Perez had made their point. 
the diamond request was rejected, but each man received a hefty bonus and a raise. In June 2007, Harry Markopoulos submitted his fourth complaint to the SEC. As far as Markopoulos was concerned, it was summarily ignored. It seemed as though no one could stop Bernie Madoff. Not Harry Markopoulos, not the SEC, not any government or higher power. His Ponzi scheme would not go down until the Great Recession destroyed everything it was built on. In 2008, a series of dominoes soon fell across the financial industry. Stocks traded for lower and lower prices. Investors around the world pulled their money as people across America faced the very real fear of losing their homes. And whether they knew it or not, many of those investors were pulling their money out of Madoff accounts. For Bernie Madoff, fall 2008 was the day of reckoning. He was suddenly on the hook for all the money he'd banked on keeping forever. Money he'd largely already spent. And given the recession, his pool of new investors had dried right up. Between August and November of 2008, Madoff went from billionaire to millionaire. It was increasingly impossible to hide his failure. On December 3rd, 2008, Madoff finally faced the music in his own way. He called Dipascali to his office and told him to start writing checks. They were on the hook for approximately $1.5 billion, which was approximately $1 billion more than they had. At 70 years old, Bernie Madoff was tired. He decided to distribute the remaining stolen money to his family and friends, so the people close to him would get their money back. Madoff told Dipascali that once the checks were out, he planned to turn himself in. Instead of Florida, he'd be retiring to prison. Dipascali began coordinating with Joanne Krupe, the account manager, to figure out how much money they had to divide, and more importantly, how to get their story straight. On December 9, 2008, Bernie called his son Mark to his office. Christmas was coming early. It was time to distribute the annual bonuses. Mark balked. He'd watched the financial industry dominoes fall and knew the smart thing to do was hold their cash. Bullheaded, Bernie pushed his son to do as he was told. Instead, Mark took his concerns to his brother Andrew. Both men were in their 40s and more than capable of making prudent business decisions. Andrew agreed they had to confront their father. That afternoon, the elder Madoff brothers had a similarly tense conversation. Bernie told Peter about his plan to end the Ponzi scheme. Peter urged Bernie to tell his sons, who'd already expressed their worries about their father to their uncle. Bernie promised he would, just not yet. The next morning, December 10th, 
Bernie had Ruth move $10 million from her investment account to a personal bank account. He did not explain why. Instead, he began signing the pile of a hundred checks from Tipascali. Combined, they were worth $173 million. Bernie was still signing when his sons and brother interrupted him. He tried to lie to his children, but after almost 50 years of lies, no one was buying it. Tension built, and Bernie declared they'd continue the conversation at the penthouse. Once there, Madoff sat his wife and sons down in the study, and finally, for the first time in 40 years, admitted his own failure. He confessed the business was basically a giant Ponzi scheme and that the family was nearly broke. Andrew broke down crying. Mark stewed silently. Ruth asked, what's a Ponzi scheme? As Bernie explained his crimes to Ruth, Mark and Andrew left the penthouse. Their father had betrayed their trust and ruined their entire careers. They were left with only one option, to lawyer up. But who could they trust with a bombshell of this proportion? It could only be family and, luckily, Mark's wife's stepfather, Martin London, was a retired lawyer. London realized this was out of his depth and quickly connected them to Martin Flumenbaum, a top trial lawyer. Upon hearing Mark and Andrew's story on the afternoon of December 10th, Flumenbaum advised them to go to the police and confess immediately, or they would become accomplices to their father's crime. Their confession was the seventh direct tip on Bernie Madoff. Within hours, the SEC and the FBI were investigating Madoff again. But this time, for the first time, they were looking for a Ponzi scheme. Early the next morning, on December 11, 2008, FBI agents Kang and Kachopi went to the Madoff's Manhattan penthouse, ready to catch a thief. Upon arrival, they clarified that they were here to speak with Bernie about his innocence. Madoff knew instantly that this was the end. He'd been turned in, and the best he could do was insist he'd acted alone and make sure no one else went down with him. Calmly, Madoff assured them there is no innocent explanation. At the same time, the SEC and FINRA sent teams to the Lipstick Building, where Frank DiPascali was frantically deleting evidence from the 17th floor computers. Even at the end, he was busy making Madoff look good. It wasn't long before the chaos spread upstairs as the FBI arrived in full force. Over a hundred innocent securities traders swiftly realized they were going to lose their jobs while the team of 17th-floor con artists tried to blend into the resounding chorus of I had no clue. Sorting the real business from the Ponzi scheme was a monumental task, 
and it was too risky to let anything slip by in the meantime. Within hours, regulators had legally seized the firm and begun the process of shutting the business down. That evening, after a full day of briefings and questionings with lawyers and FBI agents, Bernie Madoff was charged with fraud. He'd been active for at least two decades and perhaps half a century. His victims numbered in the tens of thousands. They let him out on bail for $10 million and his passport. The judge, wisely not trusting Bernie Madoff to produce any money he claimed to have, insisted on four co-signers. The next morning, December 12, 2008, Bernie Madoff was the biggest news story and the most hated man in America. Almost $65 billion in international wealth had disappeared. The panic on Wall Street only worsened and it spread across the nation. Hedge funds and banks around the world sent apologetic letters to clients regretting their lack of due diligence. Everyone, from Korean school teachers to JP Morgan Chase Bank, lost assets. Madoff had even managed to defraud the International Olympic Committee. Entire charities, including the Pickhauer Foundation, the Norman F. Levy Foundation, and the Chase Family Foundation, had to be shuttered, unable to function without their Madoff account money. Even Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor who encouraged forgiveness of Nazis, publicly said he could not forgive Bernie Madoff. And while he should have been relieved, Harry Markopoulos loaded up his shotgun. He was convinced the SEC would raid his home, destroy his evidence and kill him all in an effort to cover up their massive oversight. Bear in mind, being an SEC regulator is a desk job. But the SEC didn't crack down on Marco Polis. Instead, he cracked down on them. The subsequent government investigations turned up years of tips and evidence of Madoff scandal, and shocking proof of it being brushed aside by SEC regulators. Thanks to Marco Polis's persistence and thorough documentation, it was impossible for regulators to plead ignorance. The SEC was forced to change their policies around whistleblowing, making it much harder for future con artists to pull off a scam like Madoff's. Harry Marco Polis may not have stopped Bernie Madoff, but he certainly stopped some of his successors. As more details emerged, it became increasingly apparent that this wasn't just a crime against Madoff's friends and family or the famous and ultra-wealthy. Over 51,700 people from 121 countries and 49 US states have since filed claims against BLMIS. Within a day of Madoff's arrest, Securities Investor Protection Corporation, or SIPC, which protects customers' rights in bankruptcy court, was on the case. 
While their jurisdiction over investment advisory was questionable, all of the fake account documents were printed on Madoff's legitimate broker-dealer letterhead, which bore the SIPC member guarantee. The con artist's attention to detail had come back to bite them. Veteran SIPC lawyers Irving Picard and David Sheehan took point in recovering the stolen funds and would do so ruthlessly. They confiscated and auctioned the hallmarks of the Madoff's luxurious lifestyle, everything from the superyacht to Bernie's underwear. Looking down the barrel of all of this, Bernie and Ruth Madoff felt they had only one remaining option – suicide. On Christmas Eve 2008, the couple mailed out gifts, took a handful of pills each, and went to bed. Bernie and Ruth survived. But many victims faced worse devastation and also felt there was no way out. One of the most public was French feeder fund manager René Thierry de la Villouche, who took his own life in his office that same week. A few months later, retired British Major Willard Foxton, left destitute by the scam, shot himself. On June 29, 2009, Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, the maximum allotment for his crimes. He pled guilty on 11 counts and steadfastly maintained he acted alone. However, it would have been impossible for Madoff to commit America's biggest crime on his own, so investigators continued to press and soon, Frank DiPascali turned himself in, delivering a full confession, which implicated his fellow conspirators. In August 2009, he pled guilty to 10 criminal charges. With all of the con artists outed, the criminal and civil lawsuits dragged on for years. Annette Bongiorno, Daniel Bonventure, Joanne Krupe, George Perez, Jerome O'Hara, David Freeling, David Kugel, Eric and Erwin Lipkin, Enrica Cotelaza Pitts, and Peter Madoff were tried on counts of conspiracy, fraud, and tax evasion, among others. All were found guilty. Though they've been villainized by the media and other victims, the people Bernie Madoff may have hurt the most were his own family. After turning their father in, both Madoff's sons cut off contact with Bernie and urged their mother to do the same, or never see her grandchildren again. But the effects went deeper. Mark Madoff committed suicide in 2010 on the two-year anniversary of the Ponzi scheme revelation. Mark made it clear his father was the cause of his death. The day she heard the news, Ruth Madoff spoke to Bernie for the last time. After being ostracized by her community, 
cut off from her grandchildren and now losing her son, she could no longer condone Bernie. She said, it was the end of it for me. Ruth tried to rebuild her life, but was once again struck by tragedy. In 2014, Andrew Madoff died of lymphoma. After betraying everyone he knew, Bernie Madoff was left completely alone. His friends had become his victims. His brother was imprisoned, his wife estranged, his sons dead. He remains in prison as of 2019. In the decade following Madoff's confession, SIPC lawyers Irving Picard and David Sheehan did heroic work, recovering over $13 billion for victims and counting. It's the largest case in the history of the SIPC. As of 2019, the recovery is still ongoing, with cash reparations paid out to verified victims as soon as they are recovered. Time magazine listed Madoff as a key figure to blame for the financial crisis of 2008. With his con, Madoff proved there were holes in the system, holes no one wanted to see. But as soon as they looked away from Bernie Madoff, the holes were gaping. Some have said Madoff's victims paid the price of greed and negligence. But more so, Bernie Madoff's victims paid the price of belief. Just like a Ponzi scheme, the stock market runs on confidence and only works if enough people believe in it. Faith is exchanged alongside bonds and options, and every day, millions of people willingly bet on the trust and belief index. Social psychologist Maria Konnikova writes that the genius of a con artist is to present themselves as exactly what we want, exactly what we are prepared to believe in. Bernie Madoff executed this perfectly. In uncertain markets, he was free money and steady growth. Madoff offered exactly what his investors wanted, and the only thing they were more willing to buy than his investment funds were the lies he sold. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next Wednesday. You can find more episodes of Con Artists as well as other podcast originals on Spotify for free or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Marler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>